thank you for being here. Welcome My pleasure. Thank you, Romy. Just a, one curiosity. How many of you are new to insight meditation practice? Great. Great. How many of you consider yourself veterans? That's a trick question. <laughs> anyway, I'm thrilled to be with you and very... Um, it's always a joy for me to if I have the good fortune to introduce people to insight meditation. In fact, I, I entitled my book, which is really not uh, Introduction to Insight Meditation, it's just Introduction to Meditation in general, but I called it Invitation, because it is, to me, it's like an invitation to, uh, to not, not necessarily to adopt a new set of beliefs, in fact, we have enough beliefs in the world to cause more wars and lots of problems. But it's an invitation to see for yourself, to become your own authority about uh, your happiness and well-being. And, those, and to discover for yourself as your own authority the causes in your own life of well-being and happiness, reliable, reliable well-being and happiness, and the causes of more distress. And it is through your own direct experience, your own what we call insight, that um, our heart, when we understand things, our heart relaxes. If you think about a difficult issue you've been dealing with in your life, when somehow an insight or an aha or some understanding of it came to your mind, even after a long struggle, there's often a, what we call cessation. There's a falling away of the, of the stress and the tension that comes with, with not understanding. So if you build a practice, if you build a life around insight, around wisdom, not so much about having a special experience, they're very unreliable, they're overrated. But a life built around insight of seeing more clearly into your nature, it just gleans many, many, many uh, of those moments of letting go and a, a general flavor of release and freedom that increases in one's life. As one great Thai forest master, Ajahn Chah, put it, uh, he said, if you let go a little, you know, if you experience that letting go a little, you'll have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you'll have a lot of peace. And if you let go completely, you will have complete peace and freedom. Your struggles with the world, and most of our struggles with the world are, are because of confusion in our minds. And you all know, I don't, if you've come to Spirit Rock, you know that there's a, there is a massive, there has been, I'm not trying to create a conspiracy theory here, but there is a massive misinformation machine that is our consumer world that thinks that if the, you know, the more you have, the happier you'll be. And unfortunately, the, the acquisition of experiences and, and pleasures and stuff has not made anybody happy. It's given us lots of moments of pleasure, but then it's left in its wake a, a chronic feeling of dissatisfaction. So it doesn't actually fulfill its promise of bringing relief to our hearts in a way that's reliable. And it turns out that um, many people have discovered, literally millions have discovered over 26, 2700 years, that 
a capacity that we have within our own hearts and minds to see clearly, to develop insight, brings the potential of a, a reliable happiness. A happiness that doesn't so much depend on what, what you're experiencing in your life, but depends on uh, your mind not being in such a state of reactivity, not fighting with reality, learning how to, how to be in harmony with reality. Learning how, and in being in harmony with reality, then we, we have much more energy and passion for, uh, for helping those who need to be helped. Uh, social justice, whatever it might be, rather than being so preoccupied with our own internal drama that, we, that we're oblivious to our surroundings and then walk around confused. For some reason, when I say the word confused, I think it was Kabir, the poet Kabir. He says, uh, Oh, how I laugh when I hear that the fish in the water are thirsty. Uh, You don't understand that what's most alive lives inside your own house and you wander from one holy city to the next with a confused look. Oh, I laugh how, when I hear that the fish in the water is thirsty. So what we discover in our practice that the, the riches that we are all searching for in our life, the relief, the sense of wholeness, the sense of harmony exists as the... turns out, don't believe me, as I said before, but it's the natural state of your own mind. So I'll start from the very beginning with a... a question in a way. You don't have to answer it out loud, but notice what happens when you, when your mind is not, when you're not lost in thought for a moment. So you're just here and notice what happens when you're just here and you're not looking ahead into what I call the imagined future and you're not looking what we call back into the imagined past. Notice what happens when you're just here, not looking ahead, not looking back, not lost in your imagination. What's the experience that you have when you're just here? Not trying to get anywhere, not trying to get away from anywhere, just here. Anybody willing to say? You can, do, you can say it out loud if you like. Not looking back, not looking ahead. Please. Aware of the aches and pains. How about your, the, the state of mind? What's that? More relaxed. Thank you. Anyone else? Not looking back, not looking ahead. More open. Just more open. Mm-hmm. Less worried. Peace. So we didn't create anything here. Yeah, please. Clarity. Uh, clarity about a question you're, you're struggling with. Thank you. Okay, so we didn't create anything. All we did was, in a sense, remove our usual preoccupations. And what many people discover is 
a, a natural peace and ease that some would say is the natural peace and ease of our own mind. But we're so used to, we're so in the habit of seeking that natural peace and ease somewhere else, at some other time, waiting for it, postponing it, associating it with acquisition or, or something. So often are we, we're looking for it elsewhere that we overlook the natural peace and happiness of just being conscious. So our practice serves two main functions, you could say, our insight meditation practice. It allows us to have insight into how our mind and body works and, and to develop some understanding, places where we're confused, have all kind, many, many levels of insights, and I'll discuss, discuss those as the day goes on. But that's one half of practice, is really noticing how our mind works. The other half is recovery, is a kind of healing, it's a reclaiming, as Thich Nhat Hanh, the great Vietnamese um, Zen master, he said, you, and it's, I'm just in some ways reiterating what Kabir said, he says, you, who are the richest person on earth who've been going around begging for a living, stop being the destitute child, come home, reclaim your heritage. So half of the practice is recovering this natural happiness of being conscious, natural peace, or as a, a Tibetan teacher calls it, natural great peace. He says, rest in natural great peace, this exhausted mind. So it's two sides. It's resting, relaxing, settling into what's always already here. And the other part is, is cultivating this quality that we find when we're here of being aware. What we, it's sometimes called mindfulness, which is the combination of of being awake or aware with clear comprehension of what it is that we're aware of. And it's through that cultivation of this mindfulness, this attention with clear comprehension, it's through that careful, continuous attention to our experience that understanding starts to arise. And the again, the understanding here is that our attention is intelligent. We are most unintelligent and ignorant when 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 we're not paying attention. When we're, when we attend to something, and I'll give you an example. You know, many people, and they even find this in, in meditation practice, will realize that they tend to hold their breath. Any of you fit into that category, tend to hold your breath? What do you do when you realize you've, you've been holding your breath? You keep holding it? So it's, it's the intelligent. Once you wake up to what you're experiencing, the wisdom, the intelligence of how to actually function, what's needed, it's right there as your, as your, own, as your own capacity. It's not something that you acquire from somewhere else or from me. It's, it's from your own natural wisdom. And part of that natural wisdom is developed through continuity of attention. And a few other things to say about this continuity of attention, or maybe one more thing for now and then we'll practice. But it turns out that when we are paying attention to something, if it is in 
what we call unwholesome, if we're caught up in, in being in hating or in, in uh, resistance or in, in greed, in trying to make something happen that's not here, once mindfulness knows that, once we're aware of that, there's something in it that lets go. It's like holding your breath. It's clinging to the breath. When you are aware of something that what we would call wholesome, like a feeling of gladness in your heart, a feeling of calm or spaciousness, ease, or just this, uh, this kind of effusion of love. When attention meets those wholesome experiences, they become enhanced. They grow. So mindfulness has this very um, wonderful purifying effect. It purifies the what's what are called the unwholesome things, things that are problematic in our life, tendencies of mind to become quite contentious with reality, somehow not accept what we're actually experiencing. Those things loosen, and the and those things that are helpful to us they become enhanced through the power of mindfulness. I could talk about this all day, but you will you could read all the books, hear everything I have to say, or any other teacher, and it, nothing would touch you like your own direct experience of practice. So this really isn't um, an inside job. And now we'll get started. So if you need to refresh your posture a little bit. As Romy said, I'll just tell you a little bit about myself. Uh, I started practicing in 19, actually it was 1971, and I started with transcendental meditation where I repeated a mantra, a kind of sound that was very tranquilizing. It was sometimes called the business person's meditation, and, and you could do it 20 minutes twice a day and get a little calm. And that would be in that kind of practice, transcendental meditation would be in the, the class of practices that we call tranquility practices, that their main intention is to, is to bring some harmony. Whereas uh, in the Buddha's teaching, there are those practices. In, in fact, the initial practices that we'll be doing today are also also have that effect of tranquility. But the practice of insight meditation is meant to, uh, to develop wisdom and insight, not just tranquility. So once I started paying attention in a way where I was learning about how my mind worked, once I started doing insight meditation, it, I was so fascinated by what my mind was doing. I was also so amazed at how crazy it was that um, that it became really inspiring, and I knew I was onto something that would be useful. So don't be surprised if the first insight that you have is that you're mentally ill. In the, I say this in the loosest possible way. And please be very, very. Certain attitudes are really helpful. Be patient. Uh, be gentle. And ideally, let go of any expectations of what should be happening. You could think of every experience that you have today. Try to, try to hold this right now. To think of every experience you have today as the right experience. It's the right experience because that's the experience that's happening. 
and we we go to the whatever we're experiencing we actually go to that for our refuge for our for that's where we find our our path our peace is in whatever it is that's happening even if you have a moment today that you're just miserable that you're feeling miserable what we do instead of oh i'm miserable i need to get out of here and plan my escape Instead, we notice, oh, this is what miserable feels like. Where do, how do I feel it in my body? What's happening in my mind? I just let myself experience that. So the art of practice is making room for whatever is the experience I'm having right now. And you'll have a whole range today. Some will be pleasant. Some will be unpleasant. Some will be neither pleasant or unpleasant. And we try to treat every experience equally. And it's equal in that it's possible to notice it. That's what we are going to work on with today. Okay. Now once again I want you to to orient yourself to the present moment. The only moment that we ever have in our life. Any other moment other than this is imaginary. The past is gone. It's just an idea actually. Future, just another idea. All ideas that happen in what we call the living present. So we don't want to miss our life. We want to actually live our lives, experience ourselves. So that's why we orient to right where we are and try to wake up to where we are. Once again, to do that, we we feel our sitting body sitting. And the beauty of feeling our body is it's always present. It's not of our imagination. It's not of the past or the future. It's right here. And a way to start that more intimately is to let our eyes close softly. And ideally you want to attune with your eyes closed to your posture being upright yet relaxed and ideally even if you're sitting on a chair it's helpful that your back is free from if you can your pelvis is dropped a little bit you feel the contact of feet if you're on a on the chair the feet on the floor and your rear end three points of contact if you're on the floor your knees in contact with the floor and your, your rear end. And draw your attention gently to that point of contact where your rear touches the cushion or the chair. Just stay there long enough until you mostly feel sensation. Hardness, heaviness, pressure. And then gently shift your attention. Once you feel that experience, shift to your hands touching whatever they're touching. Feel the gentle touch of the hands, sensations, aliveness. Touch of the lips. you just feel that soft touch 
touch of the eyelids. Just noticing how, with a little attention to your body, how there's a a gentle stilling that happens. And you feel the gentle stillness of the whole body. You feel its aliveness, its vibration. Quite naturally, you should be drawn to the gentle movements that your body makes when it breathes. Or sensations that arise with breathing. You may feel it at your nostrils. You may feel it as your chest or your belly rises and falls. You may just feel your body expand and contract with each breath. We let go of any idea of what a breath should feel like. We just feel the way our body's breathing in this breath. You may notice short breaths or long, rough or smooth, deep or shallow. Let the breath breathe itself. You might find it helpful to accompany the breath with a soft little mental label just to help you stay connected to the experience of in with the in-breath, out with the out-breath, arising, falling, expanding, contracting, whichever reflects what your experience is. 90% or 95% of your sensitivity to the feeling of the body breathing. 5% this little whisper in your mind of in and out. Transparent like a dragonfly wing.
this initial tool of mindfulness directed to the breath is our um, our initial means of calming, steadying our mind and body, bringing some focus. Just connect with this breath, with this moment. After just a few breaths, you'll realize often that your mind has drifted into fantasy. At that moment that you realize that your mind has been absorbed in thought, that moment that you realize is is a moment of awareness or mindfulness shining through again. Waking up. Please don't judge that wandering. Appreciate that moment of waking up. And for the purpose of staying anchored in the living present, we connect again to our body and breath. We place our attention back in our body very gently, like putting a puppy gently back on paper when you're trying to train it. Each moment that we wake up to where we are, connect again with our body and breath, we develop our mindful attention. We bring our mind and body together in harmony. Just this moment, just this breath.
coming close to the felt experience of this particular breath, sinking into it, sticking sticking to it through the duration of the in-breath and the out-breath. As much as possible, making the allowing the breath to breathe itself, but often with attention, the breath may alter a little bit, but as much as possible, let it go, let it breathe itself. This is not a yogic or controlled breath. This is just connecting with the body's natural breath, however it may be breathing. Connecting and sustaining. Just this breath. Ten more minutes. Begin the practice right now. Every moment's a new beginning.
in the last minutes of the sitting, notice where you most often feel the the breath most clearly in your body. And let that place, either your chest or your belly, as it rises and falls, the whole body expanding and contracting, or the air passing through your nostrils, let that place where you feel it most clearly be your home base. And in these last minutes, stay connected to this experience of sensation created by your breath. Through the duration of the in-breath, through the duration of the out-breath, breath by breath, In, out, or rising, falling.
So good news or bad news? All of the above. Well, just to normalize your experience a little bit, and I'm not just telling you this to feel better, that most people, most insights at the beginning are bad news. You realize that your body is, um, your body is tight, uh, either restless or fatigued. Lots of aches and pains that we usually move fast enough not to notice. Uh, we experience the residue of our of our lives, and typically our lives are are somewhat. You probably hear this expression disembodied. We tend to be spend a lot of our time. Well, I'll tell you a little story. There was a great Thai forest master named Ajahn Buddhadasa. And he, I think, ordained as a monk when he was about seven years old, lived till 90-ish, and met with, he was very venerated in Thailand, and met with literally thousands upon thousands of people. And toward the end of his life, his students gathered around him and asked him to comment uh, about the world, and thought that he might have something pithy to say. And when they asked him about the world, he answered in three words, lost in thought. (laughs) That was his commentary on the world. So our life is pervaded by uh, a chronic tendency to to daydream. And meditators will not stop daydreaming, but you will have, you will put perhaps to to better use those moments that you are awake and then extend those moments of wakefulness, of being, of actually comprehending what you're experiencing in real time. And the more you do that, the more you'll see. The more you see, the more interested you will become about what's actually happening in real time. The more interested that you become in what's happening in real time, the less obsessed you'll be with trying to be somewhere else the present becomes more compelling and the desire to be elsewhere diminishes. And that's the promise of awakening. So it's not just about becoming mindful and more efficient in your life. It's about a transformation of your experience of your life. And it's about about learning how to live uh, an engaged, a wakeful life. Actually be... um, not just a human doing, just obsessed with what's next, but a human being like, wow, I can see, I can hear, I can smell, I can taste, I can feel. And there's nothing more, in some ways, I, don't, I use funny words sometimes, but there's nothing more juicy than being right here. And I've been busy thinking that it will be more juicy tomorrow. You know, I wait for the weekend I wait for the vacation, I wait for the relationship, I wait for the purchase, often in a state of chronic postponement, suspended happiness, when what's waiting, what's often missed, it's sometimes called an open secret, that that what you're actually searching for is, is what's already always here. 
But that process of reorienting ourselves and our source of well-being and happiness to this moment, that's an acquired, it's unfortunate, it's so natural, but it's an acquired taste because we've been, we've been taught and our ha- mind habit is to, is to jump ahead. And the funny thing is there is no ahead except in our, in our imagination. Isn't that wild? Just a little side story before we move on. I, uh, I was in graduate school. You notice how, how in our, the way our mind works, this is not rocket science or anything, the way our mind works is we tend to think in terms of time. And it's wonderful that we can think in terms of time. We can construct in our mind the past, and we can construct in our mind the present, and then construct in our mind the future. And we often think of ourselves as having come from the past, passing through the present, going to the future, in a kind of linear way. Does that seem like it's true for you? Even though we've never left the present moment. Our mind constructs time. And as you could say, um, people in in the Western world or the developed world or however you want to talk about it, we tend to construct time as the past being behind us. And it's all mental. We construct it as the time being behind us, back the past being behind us, the future being in front of us. And we're on our way and our necks are leaning and our bodies are tense, waiting to get where we're going even though we, our life is really always here, always an unfolding present. So that's just a whole story that tends to create a feeling for us of oppression, a feeling of being caught in this little wheel of time. And it's always, times we're always running out, but we're going there. And often at the end of it, as George Carlin says, what do you get? A death. He says, what's that, a bonus? (laughs) I'll read a little bit from him this afternoon. But I happened to, in the 80s, I I went to graduate school in San Francisco, and we studied different language structures by different tribes and different places in the world. And one of the tribes had the exact opposite way of thinking of time. They saw the past as in front because you can see it. The future behind, because you can't see it. So that, just try that on for a moment. <laughs> Nevertheless, it's a construction. And as one of my teachers used to say, meditation, mindfulness, developing mindfulness is getting out of the construction business. It's learning how to see as the word vipassana, which is often translated as insight, is seeing things as they actually are. And the more we experience our life as it actually is, we don't stop imagining past and future. It's wonderful that we can do that. But we stop taking our imagination to be the reality. We recognize imagining is imagining. And we, we come to see the reality of what we call the present moment. Even that is another idea. Yet we know we're here. But when we discover the reality of the present moment, 
we see that reality is very simple. Reality, so our mind's fabrications and our stories of past and future, very complicated. Our memories, our pasts, our, our stories, very complicated, rich, amazing. But reality, that's a kind of conceptual reality. Reality is very simple. Reality consists of sight and the consciousness of seeing, sound and the consciousness of hearing, smell, consciousness of smelling, taste, feeling things in our body, and thinking. Five physical senses and one mental sense that allows us to be able to comprehend what we're feeling and then also to think and react. That's it. So life is quite simple in reality. And if, if your life feels complicated, what you're talking about is not your life. You're talking about your situation, your story. The narrative of your life, that's very complicated. Most of us have complicated lives. But the reality of it is really a moment-to-moment unfolding. And that's pretty simple. So if we lose touch with that simple moment-to-moment experience of our lives, we get completely lost in the, in the complications of our lives. What the Buddha had a word for it, papancha, elaborations, complications, the effusion of fantasy. And we lose touch with the, with the as he called it, the bare data of cognition, just what's happening. So I don't know if that's interesting to you, but it's, it's nice to recover reality. It turns out it's, there's a certain safety, there's a certain relief in coming into the, in, in at least being able to see the difference between yourself in real time, your experience of yourself in real time here with me, and the stories that you tell yourself, the difference between that and the stories you tell yourself about yourself and about your life and about, the, about that. As James J. Audubon put it, if there's a difference between the bird and what the field guidebook says, believe the bird. So we want, to f- we want to experience ourselves, not just the idea of ourselves, the approximation that you find in a book or our story. And so what's that like, even now, just sitting here? See, there's a, some ways when we're sitting here, when we, these simple moments of being ourselves, not quite as dramatic, not as much suffering. We see that much of our stress and suffering is, is in, our, in our imaginations. It's from being disembodied and lost in our imagination. So we don't stop, we don't stop having imaginations or having, being able to remember our story, our personal histories, and be able to talk to each other. But we, instead of being lost in them, mistaking them for the reality... We start relating to them as, oh, there's my story. There's my, there's, that's, that's how I came. We start to understand ourselves. As, yeah, that story describes how I came to be here. How I am a unique expression of life. And it's amazing. But here I am. 
And I don't want to miss this. With all the richness of my story, right here I'm not so easily describable, but I'm experienceable. I don't know if that makes sense, but I want you to have that sense. So we start, as the Buddha recommended, says there is, if, he says there's one thing, he said, he said this to the monks, and for the purpose of our time together today, you're all monks. He says there's one thing, O oh monks, that leads to, um, to uh, a pleasant dwelling in this very life, to calm, to focus, to the, to the liberation of the heart. There's one thing. And he said that is mindfulness or this attention with clear comprehension directed to our body. So this, when the mind is brought into the body, the body is calmed, the mind is calmed, there's a kind of relief of the, of the pressure of trying to get somewhere. There's a, there's a calming, there's a steadying. And everything that one needs to learn about one's functioning, learn, learn and trust, we discover as something that's natural to us. So we don't, we don't necessarily have to acquire something, we simply have to keep settling back into the moment where we're at and let that natural intelligence, the love that flows from our hearts so easily when we're, when we're here, attention, as one teacher says, attention brings affection. You know, if I look at any of you long enough, I'm going to feel affectionate toward you. If I'm going to be present with you. It just happens. If I'm caught up in my, my internal world, I may not see you, or I'll see you through some kind of lens of fear or, or some kind of desire. But when I'm open, every person is interesting. And there's this kind of natural feeling of kinship and connection. Of course, I don't want to be too romanticize it too much because we're we're very conditioned. But you'll see. Even I notice over the course of I've taught a lot of retreats here. I've been leading retreats now for thirty two years, and I, I have a lot of sample big sample size. <laughs> and one thing is, people come all caught up in their stuff and their bodies tight, and then slowly, slowly, even in day longs like this, there's a the lights go on and people become so sweet and given us conditions of safety we we are intrinsically very dear now even our politicians <laughs> but uh, you can see our conditioning gets very calcified and out of that comes all kinds of unwholesome acts of body speech and mind but nevertheless, we, if we want a peaceful, heartful world, we have to have peaceful, heartful people. It's not something you can impose. It has to come from our own, our own recovery. We often dedicate our practice to, to the welfare and benefit of, of, of others, not just for ourselves, obviously, because it, it actually makes us more affectionate. So it all starts with mindfulness directed to the body. And in a sense, it stays that way. 
So we will start today with this initial tool of, of finding that place that's fairly reliable that we can use as a home base or an anchor, that feeling of our body uh, when it breathes. But as we go along through the day, we will include other uh, both uh, physical and mental experiences. And even the mental experiences, there's often a physical corollary. Like when you have an emotion, for example, there's often a felt sense of it in your body. But we'll start with the simple experience of breathing. We'll move on to the experience of hearing and the experience of other physical sensations. It's called mindfulness directed to the body. We'll also study a little bit the experience of what we call feeling. This is not, in this case, it's not uh, emotions. That comes a little later. But feeling in the context of insight meditation is the valence or the flavor of experience that comes with every sensation. Really every experience, but we'll start with sensation. And that flavor is either, as I mentioned earlier, it's either every experience that you have is either pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant or unpleasant, sometimes called neutral. Now that may not seem like it's so meaningful right now, but depending on how we react to those, those flavors is, is how we end up getting into a wheel of, of stress. And by being able to notice the flavor of experience and open to it, even the unpleasant experiences, we find that we, we, end up having, we end up letting go of a lot of our excess stress. Our excess stress, our mental suffering, is often reacting to pleasant things by trying to hold on, unpleasant, trying to push them away, and neutral things by just spacing out. We try to bring attention to all three of those. And uh, I'll elaborate more later. Then we move on to different, noticing the different states of the heart and states of the mind. Happy, sad, joy, anger, fear. We include those equally in our meditation. Instead of relating from them like, I'm, I'm angry, we notice, oh, this is anger. And instead, of, instead of being the sad one, we just notice, oh, this is sadness. And we start to relate to our experiences as, almost as you would weather. You see them come and you see them go. They're, they're, in that way, they're very much like weather. And what you'll begin to notice over time is that, that, there are some, that, that theme of weather rolls through everything. Everything is, is coming and going. And that's a kind of meditative insight. We all know it. Logically, life is full of change. But when you start to experience it on the inside, it begins this process of, you, you see, trying to hold on to something that's changing, as one teacher put it, gives you rope burn. But learning how to let go brings a sense of ease. So you start letting go into the change of the weather, outer weather, and the inner weather doesn't mean getting rid of, it means you stop holding so tightly. And when you stop holding more tightly, you have more peace, just more, more ease. But it all starts with the body. And the, 
The second part of our, our formal practice will be sitting, our first part of our formal practice. The second part of our formal practice will be, uh, will be um, walking meditation. Equal opportunity to put our mind in our body and our body in our mind, but to do it in movement. So as you notice here right now, I am... I'm, you could say I'm here, I am, I'm aware. So that's sometimes called the Buddha, I'm a, a, awake. A Buddha means awake. That's why we say I go to the Buddha for refuge. You go to that place in you that's awake, aware. And the experience that I'm having, sometimes called the Dharma or the truth, is that I'm sitting and I'm seeing you. And I'm in this room, so I know the context, I know the direct experience. So Buddha noticing the Dharma. So any time during the day, if you forget what, what we're doing here, say, oh, well, am I aware? And you'll, you'll realize, oh yeah, I'm aware right now. And then the second question you ask, what am I aware of? Am I aware? What am I aware of? That's what we call Buddha Dharma. Wake to what's true. So simple. And the third thing that we often go to, we, go to, we really rely on this, Buddha Dharma. That's our whole practice in a way. Not the historical Buddha. You know, he's dead 2,500 years. Very useful teachings, but Buddha means awake. So we rely on Buddha Dharma, just what's happening. We don't look for anything but that. And then the third thing we rely on is the support that we gather from each other. It's very different to, there's a, a certain lifting power to practice together with others. So taking advantage of that opportunity of sitting with others and also offering that support to each other. It develops that generous heart, altruistic heart. So that's all you need to rely on today. Buddha being aware whatever it is that's happening, and supporting and being supported by each other. You know, from thousands of years, they've been chanting the, every practice period, every monastery, Budang Saranang Gachami, Dhammang Saranang Gachami, Sangam Sarana. I go to the Buddha for refuge, I go to the Dharma for refuge, I go to the Sangha. Now often people take it on as some kind of religious thing where the historical Buddha, and they get inspired. The teachings are beautiful, and they're, they're jewel-like, and they're so helpful. And then Sangha, the Sangha of all the beings who've awakened. That's much more of the kind of classical, but in the immediate sense, it's just you, all of us together, awake to whatever it is we're experiencing, and with each other. So here I am, Buddha noticing the Dharma of sitting now I'm about to stand up. Now I'm experiencing Buddha. What's the Dharma now? Experience of standing. Did I leave the Buddha on the cushion? Don't associate your meditation with sitting. That's just one place of formal practice. As you can see, as I walk to the edge of the platform, clearly comprehend that if I just walked off, I might fall over. That's, 
I haven't, the Buddha is still here with me, the intelligence that comes from being aware. And I'm going to more carefully walk down. Still, the Buddha noticing the, the Dharma of walking backwards. So now I've found my formal walking spot. This is equal sitting, equal walking, all the same. And then we'll discuss the equality of all the informal periods as well. But during the walking practice, if I just sat all day, I would, um, because of the state of our mind and the state of our body, I would very quickly, as maybe you even felt, experience some degree of tranquility. That when the body and mind come together, there's tranquility. There's a kind of quieting. And if my vital energy is very strong, if I'm well rested, I'm, I've been, I have been, not been burdened by too much complication in my mind or my life, I could sit maybe all day and maintain a kind of brightness of mind and yet have that a quality of tranquility. But most of us are really diminished from our daily life. Our vital energy has gotten flattened out through being lost in thought, through stress, through all the, the impingement of our senses by so much uh, sound and you know all the things that we have to do every day. It's described as Sankara Dukkha, just every day, get up and do it again, that you know, Jackson Brown song. I don't know if many of you know that. So for most of us, if we sat all day, we'd have lots of tranquility, but not much energy. And when you have high tranquility and low energy, we often say that at certain times of the day, it looks like the wailing wall in Jerusalem in here. <laughs> so as a, both a way of developing continuity of attention, building the, the habit of presence, aware presence and continuity of attention, we not only sit mindfully, but we walk mindfully. And even though our primary anchor, our, our initial tool in the sitting is the breathing, is however we experience the breath, in the walking, our primary anchor and tool is not the breath. We let the breath just go along as it does. Instead, we use the, the bottoms of our feet, the soles touching the floor, that feeling of contact, or sometimes the top of the feet, or the, the, generally the lower leg, and we simply connect our attention with the feeling of our legs walking and the contact. And we slow down enough to feel it. So that we're just not just racing through our steps because we're usually zooming and you know, missing the experience of walking anyway. But we walk at a pace that we can stay relaxed, balanced, attentive, and interested. You know, if you walk too quickly, you won't notice much, and so you won't have much interest. You'll get bored. But if you, so you want to walk at a pace that you can stay balanced. If you walk too slowly, when your mind isn't settled, you'll teeter over. You'll tense up. So you want relaxed, balanced, attentive, and interested. And you want your eyes to be slightly ahead so that you at least see where you're going. And you want to just feel your steps.
And in general, you can, of course, this is very portable. You can go anywhere and, have, and do walking meditation. It's one of the things that people find most translatable to their daily life, and nobody has to know you're doing it. However, here, during the formal periods, we choose an area 10 to 30 steps long, and we walk back and forth, to and fro. And one of the first realizations in that process, and why we do it, is to realize that you're not going anywhere. The point is, <laughs> the point is to arrive at the step that you're taking. And that is the point of our practice, is to arrive in the present moment. And I'll just leave you with one more quote before we actually do some formal practice. From Alan Watts. He said, we, When you make music, you don't do it in order to reach the end of the composition. If that were the purpose of music, the fastest players would be the best. And when we dance, we don't do it in order to arrive at a particular place on the floor, as in taking a journey. Uh, when we dance, the dance itself is the point. When we take a journey, the journey itself is the point. Same is true in meditation. point is always arrived at in the present moment. So as he put it in classic beat language, he said the point is to dig the present, to groove with the eternal now, and to see that place where it's at is simply here and now. So just step by step. So rather than that toppling forward to get to the end of our pathway, instead what we emphasize is a sense of settling back into the moment. So you're aware of not just your front body, but you're aware of your back body. You're just aware of stepping. Any questions about this before we do some walking? Okay, have at it. We will have 20, 20 minutes for walking and then five for the transition. So uh, in about 25 minutes, we'll, we'll meet again in here for another sitting. And what we'll do today is alternate sitting and walking, sitting and walking, so that you actually build a certain momentum of, of mindful attention. And I'm really happy you're here, and I'm looking forward to checking in after the next sitting. Please. Are we just... No, you can walk all over the place, but don't walk too far that you spend the whole time walking to somewhere. Just find your walking spot, walk back and forth. And it may look weird at first, like the land of the living dead, but just, <laughs> just try to have fun with it. And in the meantime, for the next few minutes, I will um, sit here if anybody wants to check in one-on-one who who may have had a question that didn't feel comfortable to say it in front of the whole group. I have a question. Please. I'm a little worried that... um...
Again, a reminder, if anyone needs a, uh, a device for hearing support, please say so. I usually do this at the beginning of the day, but when there's... Something else moved me to start in a slightly different direction this morning, but one of the, um, the perhaps one of the most important elements of our practice and practice in general, practice together, is that we, one, is that everyone uh, feel welcome. And so I'd like to welcome you again and all parts of you and welcome your all your various orientations your uh, sexuality your gender your whatever your interests are whatever your joys your sorrows everything every one of you and every part of you is welcome here and ideally the you want to be able to relate to your own experience in that same welcoming way that's part of the function of mindful attention, you could say it's a non-contentious awareness. It's an open-heartedness. It's, a, it's sometimes described not as mindfulness, but as kindfulness. The combination of kindness mixed with attention. So I'm hoping that you, you bring that kind of kindfulness, that open-heartedness to your own experience. As well, we a, a part of that element of creating a sense of welcoming and safety is that we agree to be together here uh, 
in a non-harming way. And ideally, you'll carry this commitment to non-harming into your meditative life. If we practice a life of, harm, of harming others and then expect to meditate, as, the, as one teacher put it, it's like trying to row a boat and not untying it from the dock. Your practice won't go anywhere. So a very foundation for the awakening of our hearts and minds is establishing in ourselves a, the what's sometimes called the bliss of blamelessness, the joy that comes from, from not causing harm with our body, speech, or mind. So in that spirit, we commit to, to respecting each person, here, respecting the, the different life forms here, and all the life, the creatures of the air, the water, the land here, and... Traditionally, this is to, a commitment not to, not to kill. <laughs> but here we, we don't expect too much killing going on here, but a, a real reverence for life. We also commit to respecting each other's property, which means not taking, not stealing. But this is also a practice of renunciation, of not taking anything that's not offered, a practice of simplicity, a practice of contentment, with whatever is presented, whatever is offered. So not killing, not stealing. Third, we agree while we're here to uh, be celibate, not to engage with one another sexually, but also not to engage intentionally in our mind with, um, with sexual fantasy, not feeding that, that kind of proliferating mind of fantasy and how that might affect how we are together is we don't engage, we don't enter into anyone's space. We don't flirt. We don't try to get anyone's attention here. We give each other the gift of solitude, which is so rare in our life. To be alone, but to get, have the support of each other, but to be uh, giving each other that gift of aloneness. And that's a really beautiful and powerful thing. Initially, the noble silence, which is the next commitment that we make not to speak to one another even if you came with someone to give each other even our nearest and dearest the gift of solitude the gift of being able to step out of that identity of friend or partner or or whatever it is mother daughter but to and to just be with life in its simplicity without the reference point of identity you know that we pointed to it earlier in the day of just being in the vicinity of just those six sense experiences. You don't need to be somebody to, to, to know yourself directly. But we're, we cling very tightly to somebody, to our roles, our identities. You've probably all heard the poem before, everybody wants to be somebody. Nobody wants to be nobody. But if that uh, somebody could just be nobody, that nobody would really be somebody. (laughs) Anyway, sorry. So we commit to not killing, not stealing, restraining our sexual impulses while we're here, using instead the energy of sensuality, sexuality, to to be present, to awaken, to feel that, um, feel how life is sexy. You know, that feeling of of immediacy and aliveness, independent of, of, our, of the procreative um, 
impulses. And we agree to be together in uh, what we call noble silence. And then when we do speak that we t- in the questions and answers which we'll have in meetings, uh, we, do, we speak truthfully and usefully and harmoniously. So we practice wise speech. And then last but not least, we agree to refrain from any drugs or alcohol or any kind of intoxicants that tend to cloud our perception, cloud our mind, and lead to carelessness and heedlessness. We, we practice clarity if we want to wake up. That's all. Everybody agreeable to being together? In this way? Great. Thank you. So we continue now with our with an unbroken mindfulness. I'm sure you had no mindless moments during the sitting or the walking, but we continue in spite of the general tendency to spend half of our time daydreaming. We're trying to infuse more of our moments with that intelligent awareness, that kind awareness. So once again, we, we take a posture that reflects our interest in being present. Think of it as dignified, mountain-like, which is, has a kind of impartial openness to whatever presents itself. And shifting from side to side or front to back till we find the center point where sitting is most effortless and where our body can settle into a, a gentle stillness and where we can let go, let be as is, like a block of ice that's been left out in the sun, kind of melting into the openness of our practice. Letting the eyes close softly, relaxing the eyes, and experiencing our practice with our whole being, not just, we're not noticing with our eyes, we're receiving with a kind of panoramic, yet precise awareness. Feeling the sitting body sitting, filling up our awareness and our awareness filling our whole body. And then once again, letting our attention as a way of calming and steadying and refining, we let our attention focus or gather a little bit to the place in our body where we feel our breath. And we continue to let the breath be our primary anchor to here and now. If you find it helpful, accompanying the feeling of the breath with that transparent whisper in the mind of in and out, concurrent with the experience, arising and falling, expanding, contracting, whatever most approximates your actual experience.
Just again a reminder that uh, you're likely to to drift into fantasy. Thoughts may arise and mindfulness may not rise to notice them. And you may drift in a kind of dream. But no matter how long you've drifted, how many times, at each time you notice that as a a moment of waking up. Time to relax and celebrate you're now awake. And for the support of staying awake, we anchor our attention again in the feeling of our body breathing. One of the places where we tend to drift off so easily is, is after our out-breath and before the next in-breath, there's often a space. And that space, because it's kind of neutral, it <clears throat> doesn't always hold our attention. So we want to hover and be aware of the space between the breaths if there is one. Either feel our whole body then, or just be aware of that space, and then be available to the next in-breath, next out-breath, breath by breath. If there is no gap or space, that's fine as well. Remember, no need to direct or control the breath. Just let the body breathe. It's not an egoic thing. The body breathes all by itself. I'd like to briefly include in our sitting this time the likelihood or possibility that sounds will come and become stronger than the breath. And if that happens, just be aware of hearing. Let the sound appear and disappear. And after it fades, gently connect again with your body and breath. And settling your mind into your body, you're likely to be visited by strong sensations that are stronger than the sensations of breathing. If any sensation becomes stronger than the breath, just graciously receive it. Aching, burning, stabbing, itching, tingling, whatever it is, you feel it, notice it changes. And as it fades, less prominent, connect again with the sensations of breathing. Just this breath, just this moment, soft mind, alert. Gentle, yet precise.
body breathes quietly by itself. You can hear your breath, maybe directing it or forcing it. Just let the body breathe quietly.
Connecting your attention to your body's experience of its own breath. Connecting and sustaining that connection to the duration of the in-breath and the out-breath and remaining undistracted as long as it lasts. Knowing that our minds are somewhat untrained and so there are many moments will come where mindfulness does not rise up to notice and we will drift in unawareness or fantasy. Just encourage that undistractedness, mindful attention by connecting again with something that's here, our body, our breath, whenever we realize that we've been daydreaming. No judgment, it's natural. Just this moment.
attention imbued with kindness. Kindness toward the breathing body, toward the sensations, toward sounds. Non-contentious, welcoming. Just this breath, or sound, or sensation.
three more minutes. When you hear the sound of the gong, simply be aware of hearing the sound arise and fade. And as it fades and you're ready to open your eyes, be aware of the experience of opening your eyes. Be aware of the arising of sight, seeing. And then be aware of any other movements that you make so that there is a gentle continuity of awareness. Well, on my end, it's a, already a pleasure to sit with all of you. But I'm wondering also from your end, was it a torture test or? No. 
This is really, a, I'd like to spend a little time right now, probably a time I can be most useful, just checking in to hear about what you're noticing so far about the sitting and then the walking, any questions, comments, concerns, descriptions. And uh, it's likely that one of your comments or questions will likely be of some benefit to someone else, so please feel free. Just treat it as being among friends, even though sometimes there's a hesitancy to speak in front of a big group, but we're all, as they say, all bozos on this bus. Please, we're going to pass the microphone around, so. Fairly new for me. Um, oh, thank you. Hi. 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 Uh, this is fairly new for me. I was wondering when I um, got to a deeper place, there were moments that my mind would drift into a story mm-hmm. and then I would come back to my breathing. But there were other moments that my mind felt neutral, like I, I'm not sure where it went because when I wanted to pull it and all of a sudden uh, someone coughed or you said something and took me back a little bit. Um, it wasn't a story that I was coming back to, my breath. It was just a neutral, deep place. Yes, yes. there are many, many, many different states of mind that we enter into. Uh, sometimes it, states, we call them hypnagogic states, where we're inclining towards sleep and it's, there's not a lot of thought, it's very quiet, but not, not clear awareness either. Uh, there are places of just quiet and peace uh, that you might call neutral. Uh, so it's, a, it's actually a kind of insight that we're not always thinking. Thoughts are just not one continuous stream. There's discontinuity. And sometimes there are gaps. And Sometimes you, you become aware that mind is not thinking, it's just quiet, and that's nice. And then you become aware that the mind was thinking, that's nice too. The key ingredient that we, that's most important is that there is some clear comprehension of what's happening, whether it's quiet or whether you've just come out of a, a big thought stream. Either way, it's a moment of waking up. Just observing. Just observe it. Yeah, and part of why we, why we, uh, at, the, at the moment that you notice that state, you're already present. But we give a slight preferential treatment to coming back to our breath, so that we can keep refining our attention and keep bringing our mind and body together, because it produces focus and harmony, and it actually enhances our vital energy. It calms our nervous system. So it, it both helps us train moment-to-moment mindfulness, but no more than noticing that state of quiet. State of quiet or whatever it is. And you'll notice a whole range of different states. So, yeah. Thank you. Hopefully you become interested in all of it. Please, over here. Wait, wait for the microphone if you don't mind. Thank you. Was the time that we walked the same as the time that we sat? No, we walked a lot shorter Shorter. than the sitting. This particular sitting was, I think, about 30 minutes. The first sitting was about 25, and we walked for about 20. Okay. Okay, thanks. (laughs)
Um, <clears throat> how do I say this? Um, clearly, being in the present moment feels better than not being in the present moment. So there, mm, feels better, peaceful, <laughs> ecstatic, whatever. Um, Sometimes. Sometimes it's painful. Sometimes um, what you're in, aware of in real time is intense pain, emotional, physical, uh-huh. uh, the residue of of, a, of having come out of a really painful memory or something. So it can be, okay. but it... But what happens is when you are present, you're not feeding any kind of reactivity. You, the reactivity and noticing cannot coexist. Okay. Um, so I noticed that there's a kind of belief or desire to have more of it. Okay? That's wholesome. I'm sorry? That's a wholesome desire. Okay. <laughs> who, who here does not want to suffer less? <laughs> So out of that, my, there is a question yes, that please. evolves, and the question is posed to you. If someone, for someone who has practiced this um, for so many years and who teaches this practice, what is it like for you on a daily basis? Is it like you're 100% awake, 50% awake? Never think... <laughs> I mean, you still have to cross the tell, street. Tell me where your question comes from. Is it intellectual curiosity? Is it doubt? Is it what's where's what's the engine um, that drives that question? And I'd love to it, speak to that. Yeah, um, no, it's not doubt at all. It's, it's very real and um, trustable, if you will, mm-hmm. reliable. To use your word. Um, no, it comes from kind of an intellectual place, just kind of a wondering, like. The old frames. Am I doing it good enough? Uh-huh. You know that kind of that kind of thing. Yes. Well, I, I don't mind telling my story a little bit. Uh, it's funny that what comes to mind of my story is is that um, I'll start with a little history and then I'll move into present time. The, the part of my story that came into my mind when you asked the question is, uh, I was thinking, I used to have the most intense inner critic, where a lot of my, a lot of my mental uh, formations or my mind stuff was, uh, was judging, self-judging. And it's virtually gone. I'll just say that. Now the default reaction to almost everything is to meet it especially my own internal process, is to meet it with acceptance and friendliness, which is really different than when I started. Having said all that, real time is I, I have lots of thoughts. I'm not bothered by them, though. And because I'm not bothered by them, they quiet. I have lots of periods of quiet. My, I would say that my default is a lot quieter than it used to be. And so I'm a lot more comfortable with silence both silence with, of speech and silence just with not much going on. And so I'm getting bathed a lot in the, in the peace of being quiet. And I have lots of thoughts. And I've, another thing that I notice is that, um, is that because there's more base quiet, I have, there's a little bit, and this is not, I'm not trying to be grandiose when I say, there's a little bit less of me you know, less of the story of me 
So I'm much more filled with everything else and more interested in everything else. And because I'm not so preoccupied with myself, I tend to function much more skillfully. I tend to... Speech comes more clear. Everything comes a little bit easier because there's just a little less self-consciousness. But otherwise, I have everything everyone else has. And the only, I think the only difference is the reduction of that judging of what I'm experiencing. So I'm a little bit less contentious with myself and I'm a work in progress and being less contentious with others. <laughs> Especially politicians. No, no. Please. Uh, we need the mic. Oh, here. Hi. Um, so I'm a total beginner, and I Great. am... Great. <laughs> really happy you're here. Thank you. And I'm just uh, reaffirming that if I, that entire experience was very lovely and restful, but I would definitely not say I had any sort of experience of insight. <laughs> but would the sort of idea of just showing up for a while be sufficient at this point? That is such a beautiful question and a beautiful answer to your own question. Yes, showing up for a while. And the key is to show up. Insight does not arise from looking for it. But only those who show up tend to realize them. So insight comes because we're intelligent and we just start recognizing things. But if you look for them, then there's a tendency to have greed in your mind and it tends to create tension. And then you're happy if if something comes and unhappy if it doesn't. And that's not happiness, as you know. So just showing up is great. And there will be, at first, maybe the biggest insight is that you have a capacity to have loveliness without a lot of stimulation. And that can be its own kind of insight that, that, uh, that already there is peace available to you that's not associated with going somewhere, buying someone, or being with anyone. So that, that itself, those, those simple kinds of insights we might overlook, but just taking in that experience of the loveliness. So I don't know if that answers your question, but... I love it that you just want to show up. Please, we have a... So that was the first time I'd done a walking meditation, and that I found it very easy to focus on what was going on with my... Well said. The, the contacts with the ground. and mm-hmm. I, I don't know if it was the newness or what, but it was just very easy to stay there. My mind wandered a lot less... Well, there, but, there is something about the, the sensations of walking in some ways are more gross or more obvious than the sensations of breathing as a primary anchor. So there's something about the grossness that calls our attention here. So it, if you can really treat it as an equal partner to the sitting and not as a break and not as a second-class citizen, really treat it as a, a potential for that sense of immediacy, it's really... I had many, many more meditative insights during walking than I've had during sitting, for example. Anyway, please continue. Um, and I, I just noticed that my mind was wandering a lot when I was you know, sitting here meditating. Yeah. Um, it, it will wander both places. And um, so I found myself 
So like I'd wander and I'd say, okay, maybe I need to try something different than my breath. So, Well, did you I, notice that you had wandered? Oh, yes. That's actually a moment of mindfulness. That's not wandering. Okay. <laughs> That's noticing that you had, had been wandering. So yeah. each time you notice it, you're here. Yeah. And then what we do is, just to help us stay here, we give ourselves that anchor of something more, more obvious, like our body. So... So what I found myself doing... You had a lot of moments of mindfulness. Well, what I found myself doing was after I was wandering a little bit, then I'd say, well, maybe I should try something different. So I would try to feel the contact points with the ground. I would try to listen. I would try to smell. And I would try to vary it up to try to keep my presence. And I'm wondering, you know, are are those tricks, do they... Um, are they good or are they bad? Should I be, you know, should I be able to be present, just focused on my breathing, or is it a good thing to mix it up and think about the different things? Thank you so much. That's a great question. First of all, for many people, mindfulness of breathing, which is called anapanasati—that's what the Buddha recommended. Uh, for many people, anapanasati or mindfulness of breathing is uh, is very challenging especially because we're quite scattered. Some people have a very contentious relationship with their breath. Either they had asthma, you know, something about breathing. So depending on your relationship to breathing, it can be, it's, it's, if it's good enough for the Buddha, it's good enough for most of us, but not all the time. So, so we don't have to be absolute about it, but it, it's a pretty useful way of helping the body and mind come together. And not to not to immediately give up on it just because you see your mind scatter a lot. And that's actually, that's not a problem. But if you do, if you are feeling as though you're very much scattered, and for people who have a a slightly more challenged relationship with breathing, there are many other objects of meditation. That's just one object of mindfulness. And one of the other main ones that people use are touch points using touch points in a in a much more organized way where you go left buttocks, right buttocks, or sitting, you feel the whole body sitting, and then just touching, or sitting, touching, left buttocks, right buttocks, or sitting, touching, and moving your attention to lips or and so those move those kinds of moving attention to different places, that also develops a certain strength of mind and, and it's fine too. But in general I'm following the, in general, the Buddha's recommendation of, of experimenting at least and maybe not evaluating whether it's working uh, except over, as the Dalai Lama says, except over 10 or 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> but feel free, though, to, from time to time, if you feel really scattered, to shift. But you also want to notice the engine that drives the shift. If you, because you don't like what's going on with the breath, then, then you shift to something else. There's um, what you're training is aversion to breathing. If, on the other hand, you're saying, I need some skillful means right now to stay present. I'm just, dre- just c- completely lost. Then you can feel free to be as creative as you like. That makes sense? Mm. Up front here, and then, and, then you, and then I'll get to this side. Uh, so what I've noticed in both of the not so, not so much with the walking, but the two sitting meditations is that when things get quiet, 
I think the construction crew comes out and starts presenting visual stimuli, yes. different colors and patterns. And so is that, I mean... So you're one of those. Yeah, and the other thing I noticed is my tongue. Your tongue. My tongue. And, and where is it? Is it? Is it pressing? Is it lying on the bottom of my mouth? What is it up to? So. You start wondering about that? Is that what you're saying? That's interesting. In terms of the visual field, inevitably, as you turn the attention inward in a way, and it starts to open up our, our internal universe, and one of the features of that is all kinds of images so all kinds of col- you know it can be all kinds of lights and colors it can be pictures it can be people it can be all kinds of things that come unbidden and that's another kind of insight as these things just pop up on their own like you said and ideally we don't get involved in the content of them you know like thinking about them or what it, they mean we just notice seeing it's internal sight so just seeing and we just as you would a sound the behavior of the sound the way it comes and goes you would notice the behavior of the inner sight. But in the case, of, as we develop in the first part of our day, we want to mostly use that moment of recognition and a gracious acceptance of that sight as a, you know, see it, see, see the way it moves, but then connect again with our, with our breath. And as far as uh, the tongue, just, you know, sometimes there's a little anxiety and then we start ruminating about one little thing or another. Some people will swallow a lot or something, and that's part of the energetic shift that happens as we get used to being quiet. So ideally, just just direct your attention elsewhere in that, other than to just notice that you're thinking about your tongue. You had your hand up right back here in the black sweatshirt. So I really enjoy the... Um peace and calm of this practice. Thank you. Um, I'm curious, I had some questions around how do you bring that to uh, your everyday life? Uh, More specifically, I think we're living in a very stimulated world, um, and part of that is digitally, right? I think people rely, at least I do, rely on digital stimuli um, all the time. Really? (laughs) Thank you so much for bringing this up. I'm curious um, how you think about that. What is your relationship with the digital world and what thoughts you have around that relationship for the rest of us? Yes, I also have a uh, about-to-be-14-year-old daughter who um, every conflict in our home is over the use of the screens. And... I, th- I usually, and although I forgot this morning, honestly, I usually include in the, uh, the fifth precept or fifth training guideline where we, we uh, renounce for the time that we're practicing uh, our use of intoxicants that cloud the mind and lead to carelessness and heedlessness. And I include our electronic our screens as a um, intoxicant that gives a kind of false sense of of pleasure in many cases, and but it actually l- makes us really depressed. 
Lots of studies about it. But it is a part of our world and it has wonderful, incredible, useful functions, but it requires a certain kind of skillfulness about how you interact with it and an ability to see where it's become addictive. And then just as with any addiction that you you practice a gentle renunciation until you can find some kind of balance and use it when you need it, but then go through what you need to go through to where you're not a, a slave to it, where you're not so dependent on it. And that's an insight that people will often have if they really want to wake up. They'll see in so many different ways in their life what they're very addicted to. And I know the screens is definitely one of them. It's one of the places when the going gets tough, we go to our screen. Go to our refrigerator, go to our go to distraction. You know, if I gave instructions for the world, I'd, I'd say, get lost in thought, you know, think all day, gratify every desire, distract yourself any way you can. We chuckle, but that's exactly the, that is exactly the, the operating instruction. So we're, by choosing, in this case, I'm saying this metaphorically, Buddha, Dharma, Sangha, awake to what's actually happening here and now, and keeping like-minded company, that's against the stream. That's why this is often called against the stream. But the beauty is, is it, it is possible. And I, you know, even though I struggle myself with it, addiction to the, the technology because it's just so, so ubiquitous and so pervasive, I still, I still joyously put it down and, um, and highly recommend it. So if you had, if you brought anything, you can feel free to donate it until until the end of the day. If you're even prone, and I would highly recommend that during our lunch period, that you don't, that you just don't even pick it up, don't even think about checking your text or your emails or anything today. This is a this is a time for you to uh, to reconnect with yourself, and there's nothing in that that will um, that necessarily inclines toward greater well-being and happiness except that's a tool that we need you know for our work and how about over here please um, the two things one is to we have a very busy environment where we live and I think um, I was thinking how to start bringing it to our daily lives. So finding the time, actually, and finding the place to do it. And then I also noticed that <clears throat> beginning with the sitting meditation, there's a development from the first time we did it to the next time. But I also think that there may be better times than others to do that during the day. Um, so, for example, when you start your day in the morning, yes. uh, what would you recommend how to incorporate various yes. kinds of meditation? Then? Thank you for your question. And I, ideally, I would like to save this kind of question till the end of the day to where we talk much more about practice in daily life. Uh, during this time, I mostly want to focus on what's actually happening here, even though I did take the question about screens and uh, uh, we could spend the whole day talking about how to take it home. And, that, and, and this is not singling you out, but the tendency is to do everything for how it's going to help us later on. How I can, and sometimes we don't take things in just for themselves. 
just for what we're experiencing on the spot. And again, I'm not singling you out. I think we we really could, if I really let it go, we would be talking about uh, we wouldn't be talking about what's actually happening in the room so much. And uh, just because that's the way our minds are conditioned. Just a sneak preview, though. I find there's two things I'll say right now and then elaborate later. The morning is the time where our mind has emptied out the impressions of the previous day during sleep, where we're most fresh, even if we're, our bodies are still tired, that our mind is more open and empty, so available to, to experiencing the immediacy of what's happening. The evening time, because our days are so filled with different stimuli, that our our clarity of mind is often not quite as, as there, but our time, our practice takes on a different flavor of more emptying out the impressions of the day and actually setting you, setting you up for a better sleep. And you just brush the dust of memory a little bit and your mind relaxes, mind and body come together, and it's a nice way of um, ending your day. So that's just a little sneak preview. Thanks for the question. Please. Hi, I'm uh, new to meditation, and um, I had a few, I guess, technical questions around how Thank you. tricks around how to do this. So I guess the first was, um, you mentioned to try to let your breath just happen, don't try to control it, but at the same time, bring your awareness to it. And I know for me, by virtue of bringing my awareness to it, I felt like I was controlling it, or at least I think I did. I couldn't really tell all the time. Wonderful observation. There is a tendency for it to be to alter when you bring attention to it. But, and it's an art to learn how to attend to it and, then, and have it still just go along by itself. Because we understand logically that when we're not paying attention to our breath, we're breathing just fine. We, our breath goes along whether we paid attention to it or not. So it's breathing itself. But yet, somehow when we pay attention to it, all of a sudden it becomes my breath. And there's often a little bit of a fear that if I don't stay right on it, I'll, I'll, I'll stop breathing. And there's, it often kind of compounds a, a slight feeling of control and anxiety. And that's usually a sign that your identity, the identity of meditator, has gotten involved with something that's really identityless. Does that make sense, what I'm saying? Breath is, doesn't, breath is just nature. It's just nature. Body needs breath. Uh, but once there's a breather, it starts getting altered a little bit. Eventually, you would find that you could, you could notice, there could be noticing of the breath without interfering. And you'd see sometimes they're long, sometimes they're, sl- they're short, sometimes rough, sometimes smooth, deep, shallow. And, and that's partly, you could, if you only did that, you would have insight into the whole nature of reality. You can see, oh, this is a selfless process. Oh, it's, it's always changing. Oh, if you try to make it, if you try to control it, it brings stress. And you, you get to see the nature of what causes us stress and just working with the breath. But at first, it's really natural what you're describing. And a, a, a quick follow-up, thank you for that, is um, I was also having some trouble trying to find my anchor and in this scenario, actually, when I did control my breath a bit more, I felt the breathing to be a bit more pronounced in my stomach, and so it was easier to sort of focus and anchor on that. Do you have any suggestions for playing around with how to find I, that anchor point? I think your comment is really wise. Your own inner guru is working very well. 
Sometimes it's useful to to make a few intentional breaths uh, just so that you can locate where it's felt. Um, But as much as possible, we don't want to turn it into a breathing exercise. And we want to really just see nature. But it's not, it's fine to start with a few intentional breaths like you did. I would say that the first day it's really an experiment to see where, where do I feel the, do I even feel the breath and where do I feel it? So many people just naturally draw their attention to their nostrils, but then it becomes, as our mind and body quiet, sometimes it becomes so faint that you can't feel it so well. Uh, so other than some people will just naturally be drawn to their, their chest or their belly rising and falling. It's a little more gross. And, and one of my teachers from, from Burma, that's what he, that was his primary anchor. He was, he was a nose breather, or that's where he attended. And then one day, his attention just dropped to his belly and he said, oh, I can feel this even. And that became the cause of a, of a whole movement of mindfulness of breathing at the belly. Buddha pointed to the nostril though. And then there's a teacher named Tan Jeff who's popularized uh, uh, full body breathing where you actually can feel your whole body expanding. It really doesn't matter. It's whatever helps you feel here. But it, you, if you start thinking about where I should feel it, then it becomes a kind of a, a subtle but n- a discursive thoughts nevertheless. And you want to just pick a spot and let it be home base, even if you're drawn to different areas at different times. Please, white t-shirt. So we'll, um, I this, think my question's a little similar to hers, but I find in these sitting meditations that I go into a really deep place where I'm not thinking, I'm completely relaxed and peaceful and calm, but then there's a piece of me that thinks, oh no, I'm supposed to be paying attention to my breath. I'm too relaxed, not thinking so then I go to that, and I'm less relaxed because I'm, thinking, you know, I'm focusing on my breath. But I liked better being in the place where I was calm and peaceful. And then I'm wondering if I'm falling asleep. So. Great, great question. Great question. One, we don't want to set up what we like against what we don't like. That's what the third Zen patriarch said. That's the disease of our mind. We, if we set up what we like against what we don't like. We tend to be happy if we get what we like and then unhappy if we don't. And that's not happiness. That's a kind of dependency. But nevertheless, we're trained to have our preferences and like certain things. So we don't want to base it on like. We want to, ideally, we want to base it on, on what's actually happening. Just letting whatever is happening be the center of our meditation. At first in our practice, though, we give preferential treatment to the breath so that our mind and body come together enough so that we can start to see everything else. So as you'll hear as the day goes on, the instructions will be just descriptions of what you'll notice anyway. And one of the things that you'll notice are those periods where it's really quiet. And as the practice proceeds, when it's really quiet, and that becomes the predominant experience, you don't have to go back to the breath. You simply experience quiet, and you notice how that behaves. What happens to the quiet when I notice it? And it may get quieter or it may fade away. Uh, Or some other thought may come or a sound will come. And each thing that becomes part of what 
arises in the present moment becomes the center of the meditation at that time. At first, we're too scattered to notice all these different changing experiences. So we, keep, so we choose a simple anchor to start with. But eventually, no matter what it is that you experience, that will be what you notice. And so the quiet is equally valid to the breath. I don't know if that answers your question. Uh, one last thing to say about the periods of quiet. It's easy to set that up as that's good and busy is bad. And that's not right. Actually, the way practice proceeds, the way it unfolds, is periods of quiet where our mind and body relax often create a more space in our mind in a way. And that space is like a vacuum. Often the next sitting, you won't, won't be able to notice anything at all. Your mind will be scattered or you'll get frustrated or restless or whatever. And that's how it proceeds. It gets quiet and then it gets noisy. So if you treat the noisy as bad and the quiet as good, you're missing the point. It's a roller coaster. And that's why we emphasize learning how to be with both the times where it's busy and restless, be with that with the same interest and openness as we would the periods of quiet. I mean, good luck, but it's, that's the direction. Last question in the very back, and then we're going to do some lunch. <laughs> as if you didn't notice, it's that time. Yeah, in today's uh, meditation, basically, uh, if I uh, approximately, right, one-third probably minds wandering, thinking, one third of it is kind of like you not really know what you're doing. It's kind yeah. of empty. Yes. And one one third probably you concentrate on the breath. Great. So, That's a lot. That's a that one third is huge. Most people, it's okay. a couple breaths and then. Psh. Yeah, I already practiced a little bit before. Oh, yeah. 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 So that's one thing. But my question it really is: as time goes by, you practice more. Which goal you want to go? I, I mean, eventually it's mindfulness, but th- that probably is not that quick, right? Do you have some kind of uh, uh, kind of milestone yourself? You can judge, okay, yeah, I make quite the progress. For instance, I can concentrate my mind on on the breath for half time. That's so yeah. I, I don't know, is there some kind of that? Yeah, I think every temperament, everyone's temperament is different. And some people will find an easy aptitude to staying with a singular object. Then other people have the aptitude to notice very effortlessly changing experiences. They'll notice one thing to another. And the mindfulness of changing experiences comes very quickly. So some people, in either case, if you notice many changing experiences, you still develop both mindfulness and concentration. If you develop just mindfulness of breathing, you also develop mindfulness and concentration. So it's, it really depends on the temperament. And what's more important as a signpost is that you are less contentious, that you, that you fight with your experience less, and that you find that you're more accepting and more, more responsive, that, that you feel the kindness uh, come forth. That's really more of a sign than whether you can stay with the breath or, or any of these other, these other matters. I think it's always, it's always changing. And so it's not really, 
these kinds of signposts are not so useful in regard to how much concentration or how much mindfulness or percentages. Even though I, I can appreciate the question, I think am I am I a little bit less reactive to my experience? That's more important. Yeah, the other thing is sometimes basically uh, you meditation, right? And you, you for a while you kind of falling asleep. I don't well, know is that good? Bad. So if you're falling asleep. As I mentioned earlier today when I introduced the walking, if you're falling asleep a lot, it means that you're a few different things. It means either you, you have higher tranquility and, and low vital energy. So your, your vital energy is, is diminished in some way. And that quietness that you get from the tranquility where there's not much attention, well, the, the Tibetans call it stupid meditation or stupid shamatha, but it's actually valued in that there's a, there is a quieting, there's a healing, but you don't learn a lot. And in general, in the, in the Theravada tradition, which is what, what we teach here at Spirit Rock, that, that kind of mind that's quiet but not much energy, it's called sinking mind, or um, in a, a kind of dullness. And it usually means, or dreaminess, we're usually inclining towards sleep. So what we try to do throughout our practice as our own authority is saying, okay, I have tranquility, but I don't have much energy. I need more energy. So we take a more precise posture, or we stand up, or we practice with our eyes slightly open, not focused, but eyes open. And you do things that actually, or you do a little more faster walking. So all those things help to balance the tranquility with more energy. First morning, though, most people have more tranquility than energy. It looks <laughs> a nodding conference. Okay, thank you for all your questions, and we'll have a chance this afternoon for a little bit more. Just to give you a little sneak preview of the afternoon, I will, in the beginning of the afternoon, I will elaborate. Hang on a second. I'll elaborate on working with physical sensations, especially the really unpleasant ones, but also the pleasant ones, and work with feeling tones, those pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. And the second sitting of the afternoon, I will we'll work with more mental states, moods, emotions, states of you know, spacious or agitated or whatever it is, how to work with those because they present themselves in our lives. So we'll do more on the body, more on mental states, and then we'll, I'll also, in that, in that period where we talk about mental states, because really the instructions are descriptions of what you'll notice anyway, I'll also include thoughts and images and how to work with thinking and the different kinds of thoughts and how to work with the content of thoughts and all of that. And so until there's nothing that you can experience throughout your day, throughout your life, daily life, that is outside of the practice. Everything, you know, it's available to you everywhere and anytime. But in terms of the formal practice, I'll, we give it out gradually. I'll also talk about the, I'll try to contextualize this pr- practice for, um, for in the teachings, you know, how, why do we do this? And I think I explained a little bit this morning, but I'll give a little bit of the historical context. And lastly, because the maybe this is not a, a it's not a formal practice of sitting and walking, you may undervalue the potential for eating to be a um, a place of practice. 
it's a place where admittedly, I know that it's true for me and many I know, it's one of the places we go most unconscious, where we become least mindful. And, and for many it was lack of safety at our dinner table growing up or, or whatever. It tends to be a frenzy of, of satisfying some kind of hunger. You know, and it's often not just physical hunger, it's emotional hunger. So it's a wonderful place to begin to lovingly bring attention to, to our eating experience and, and to actually notice all the mechanisms that go on in the eating, the raising of our, our arms, this even notice raising my hand and moving the food to my mouth, opening the mouth, closing the mouth, chewing, noticing the emergence of, of flavor how the, and the, how the flavor comes and as it fades, we're usually reaching for the next bite and how unreliable flavor is in that way. It's a great source of insight. So eating very mindfully, you'll see how much energy it takes to eat. You may find that you start eating a little bit less if you do it mindfully, and you'll see when you're actually full. But before you eat, it's the one place where some mindful reflection, where some use of your conceptual mind is useful to reflect on how that food that you're eating, how it, it makes you and how that food is not separate from all the elements of nature, the, the grocer, the trucker, the farmer, how it, the whole world is involved in that food and that it reminds us of our deep sense of interbeing. It doesn't just happen in a vacuum. So to take that in and know that you're actually feeding what allows you to have vital energy and, and enough energy to, to practice and it's a fun thing to reflect on that the interbe- interdependence of things and then eat as mindfully as you can and then after you eat feel free to rest we're going to have one hour at a quarter till two we will meet again we'll have one hour for lunch at a quarter to two uh, we'll sit again but if you have 10-15 minutes before a quarter to two, please do a little walking practice. Otherwise, it will really look like the wailing wall in here first part of the afternoon. So do a little walking, come in to sit, and have a great lunch. And thank you for the morning. A real pleasure to be with you. And some of you may not have realized we were in silence today. And so if you, if you feel so inclined to eat with your Friends, please do it in a place that's not interrupting anyone else's solitude, but preferably that you just keep this as a rare opportunity to be alone together. Good to see you too. This is my daughter, Emma. Wow. Lucky you. Lucky you. Thank <laughs> you.